what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. In 2015, comedian Chris Rock posted a series of photos on his Instagram. The photos were in selfie mode. You see Chris, a close-up of his face, in his car, but he's not driving. He's parked on the side of the road. And in each photo, over his shoulder, through the rear window, are the telltale lights of a police cruiser. The caption of the first photo says, Stopped by the police again. Wish me luck. In one of the shots, the third one, Chris isn't even driving. He's in the passenger seat. These three photos were all taken within the span of seven weeks. Chris Rock says he was pulled over three times in seven weeks. And he's certain it's because he's black. Chris Rock is not alone with this. Johnny Cochran, Will Smith, Isaiah Washington, Barack Obama have all talked about being pulled over by police for driving while black. If you haven't heard the term, it's a play on driving while intoxicated, only one of which, by the way, is actually illegal. It describes how substantially more black drivers than white are pulled over by police. In the United States, where Chris Rock lives and took those photos, according to a 2013 report from the U.S. Justice Department, a black driver is about 31% more likely to be pulled over than a white driver, 23% more than a Hispanic driver. And the reasons given? Well, everybody is likely to get tagged for speeding. But black drivers are the most likely to get pulled over for vehicle defects or record checks. Even more troubling, the report says that nearly 5% of black drivers aren't given any reason at all. Now, yeah, those are U.S. numbers. But the same thing is happening in Canada. So we were letting you go and you came at us. I came at me, came at yeah, so nothing. So I came to you on tour. Okay, okay you there you let it go okay. right now. I'm taking it by force, okay? Thank that's from a video shot March 3rd, 2017, in Montreal. In the blue and red flashes of a police cruiser's lights, you see two officers hold a guy up against the cruiser and put him in cuffs. The guy's name is Kenrick McRae. The footage you're hearing now, the reason we have this tape, is because Kenrick's girlfriend was filming, almost like she'd done it before, which she had. In case you've never had to wonder if filming your interactions with police is legal, it is. Henrik says this kind of thing happens to him on a regular basis, sometimes multiple times a week, getting pulled over and questioned by police for no reason. Besides, he says, the color of his skin. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. If driving while black doesn't happen to you, and you don't know anyone it does happen to, I want you to get to know Kenrick. And by the end of this hour, you will know somebody. And if it does happen to you, this is Kenrick's story 
of how he set out to prove that he was getting pulled over because he is Black and trying to stop it from ever happening again. I'm going to hand things over to Doc Project producer Mark Apollonio. He'll take things from here. Yeah, I'm a white guy. I've never been pulled over unless I've manifestly broken the rules. So even if I theoretically knew this kind of thing happened, and even if I know people it's happened to, while talking to Kenrick, the gulf in our experience of law enforcement became unbelievably clear. Okay, my name is Kenrick McCree. I'm from British Guyana, commonly known as Guyana, the land of many waters. Kenrick was born in the village of Rosignol in the county of Berbice. As a teenager, his family moved to the country's capital, Georgetown. There, Kenrick would have to cross a river by ferry to get to his high school. It was on that boat that he had his first inkling of what he wanted to do when he grew up. To get off the ferry is very congested. Sometimes I'm sitting right there, and I see these guys trying to pick other um, commuters' pockets, you know, and that was the thing that set me off. It particularly bothered him to see pickpockets going after nurses, taking the ferry to the local hospital. These nurses don't even know because, you know, everybody's jam up, you know, so that pushed me to join the police force. Kenrick had solid grades. Fresh out of high school, he enrolled in a police training program run by the Guyanese military, aimed at grooming managers and high-ranking officers. Kenrick crushed it, hired by the Guyana police force right out of the gate, just 18 years old, a cadet officer, helping oversee operations of several police stations. He loves a lot about this job, working with communities to make neighborhoods safer, bonding with his team, the feeling of being looked up to and respected. I get a salute in public. You know, that's, that's a respect, you know. Eventually, Kenrick, he's promoted to assistant superintendent. He oversees four police stations. At the time, he says their main concern was drugs coming up from Colombia en route to the rest of the world. Drugs come through there and then it divert to, to the U.S., Canada, and, and Europe. But officers like Kenrick, they dealt with the local drug dealers. And that part of the job, it wore on him. Like the time he busted a single mom dealing drugs out of her home. You feel it because, you know, she's the only breadwinner and this is what she was doing just to um, feed the kid. And now we got to take that mom away, lock her up, you know, put her before the court. And um, in most cases, she's sent away to prison. And then the child now is left to be um, looked after by other relatives or, you know, sometimes some other relatives don't even want to take the chance. So those are some of the, the bad moments. About half a decade into his career, Kenrick took stock of things. The pay on the guy in a police force was terrible. And rising crime, he says, was sending his stress levels soaring. He had family in the wealthy British Virgin Islands, so he took a chance and tried life there. In Rowtown, the capital, he made a life for himself. He got a long-term girlfriend, and several years later, she told him she wanted to try something new. She wanted to move to Canada. And I said, okay, you know, I'm going to take the offer. So um, I moved to Montreal in 2006. When I moved to Montreal, um, the, the first thing I, I thought about um, to work, I wanted to join the police force. Kenrick didn't speak French, which ruled out that idea. He took gigs in factories and warehouses. 
A couple years in, he and his girlfriend, they're now married, and she's pregnant. We're going to have a little girl. Kenrick's daughter, Kayliana, was born in 2009. It was a joyous moment, a moment to give thanks. You know, I, I believe in God, and, you know, I give thanks because I'm, 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 I was blessed, you know. A small family underway, Kenrick keeps trying to step things up career-wise. Finally, he finds it, a solid job that doesn't require French. He becomes a brake rider moving planes around the tarmac before and after takeoff at Montreal's Trudeau International Airport. I was the person sitting in the aircraft, turning on certain features in the aircraft so that the plane could move freely. Kenrick likes the work. He's got benefits, the pay's good. Good enough he's able to buy a car he's had his eye on for a while. I'm Marcinis Benz ML um, 500. I, I like everything about, about the car. It's an SUV, 2002. Its exterior decked out in stripes, the color of the Guyanese flag, red, yellow, and green. One afternoon on the job, in the fall of 2012, his supervisor asks if he can help unload baggage from a plane. He grabs a heavy piece of luggage, about 70 pounds. He goes to heave it onto a cart, but it catches on something and bounces back onto him. I fell backwards and the bag came smashing on my head and neck. I get up and... um. I was in beer pain. His colleagues help him up. His pain's so bad, he heads straight to a walk-in clinic. He eventually gets a scan. And the MRI revealed that I have two horniated discs and one protrusion disc in my neck. Suddenly his life, it's all about doctors, pain meds, pain management, and physiotherapy. He can't work. He gets temporary government income support. But his job as a brake rider, it's over. In the intervening years, Kenrick's marriage breaks apart. And while he's focused on improving his health and parenting his daughter with his ex, a whole other set of problems was just ramping up. He's driving one night. It's 2015. Police pull him over. Kenrick asks what it's all about. Officer tells him the lights over his license plate are out. Kenrick gets out, takes a look. But the lights, they're on, shining away. Kenrick points this out. The officer changes course. They told me um, the lights over the license plate wasn't bright enough. So it's not a question of whether the lights are working, but if they're strong enough. Kenrick tells him he'll sort it out. I said, OK, I'm going to go to um, more cities, Benz, and let him check it out. So I went there, and um, one of the, the guys that, that is um, in the yard, I asked him to check the specifications. And he checked them and he said, yo, this, that's the right specifications. But even if his lights are up to spec, Kenrick's just not going to chance it. So I went to Canadian Tire and I bought a light. I think it's you know, a portable light. You know, you could just attach it. I mounted it myself in the middle of the number plate. So my Mercedes-Benz is the only Mercedes-Benz, I guess, in Montreal with the two original license plate lights plus extra light in the middle. I've seen a photo of this thing. It is a bright license plate. So I guess now, well, they can't stop me and tell me, well, my lights wasn't bright enough. I'll say again, as a white guy, I don't even know if my license plate has lights, which, while I'm pretty sure it does, I can't say for certain. I definitely couldn't tell you how many. Truthfully, until I started talking to Kenrick, I'd never realized or thought about the fact that cars generally have lights on the plates, let alone considered buying a third and attaching it myself. But Kenrick, 
He does all this hoping it'll end his run-ins with police. But it doesn't work. Let's say sometimes 10 to 15 times a month. That's how often, in a bad month, Kenrick says he's pulled over by police 10 to 15 times. If I look at the police, you know, we make eye contact. You know, they just pull me over. Oh, asking me some questions like, where I get money from to buy this car? What kind of work I do? Time and again, Kenrick says, police pull him over, ask him those kinds of questions. Like during this stop, he recorded in July 2017. Yeah, you guys are always fighting me down. No, no, I, I, I had to stop you first to see if you are the owner or not, okay? I was not to be able to know who was the owner from, from there, all right? So I can see right now. He says he often uh, asks okay. if he's being profiled because of his race, and that they say no. They give him a pretext, a reason for pulling him over. They, they might say, some kind of light is not working. Um, oh, you, they thought I didn't have my seatbelt. But when I come up, they, they, they see the seatbelt on. You know, they, all kind of things they come up with, you know, just to stop you. Those pretexts, he says, they always just sound made up. So do you have a transit or not? Like this police stop in August 2017. Kenrick, at this stage, he has a new girlfriend. She didn't want to be named in this documentary, but she filmed it on her cell phone. Hi, camera. So he saw the camera, he said, hi, camera, like he's mocking me now, you know, you see the camera? Hi, camera, wave into the camera. When Kenrick asked the reason for the stop, the officer told him his license plate was missing. It was just not there. My, my, my plate is not at the back. Kenrick gets out of the car to check his license plate. Then he reports back to his girlfriend. It's exactly where it's supposed to be, bolted into place. That's why I, I just checked my license plate. My license plate gets some long bolts like this. Some big fat bolts screwed on there. He takes that incident to Quebec's police ethics commissioner, argues it was racial profiling. The false claim his license plate was missing, he says, was proof. But the commissioner dismissed the complaint. The reasoning that it was an understandable case of human error. That the officer was coming off a night shift and had said he hadn't had his morning coffee. So in the face of all this, Kenrick says he feels he's being targeted, that he has no recourse to justice. He's reached the point that he's developed a kind of protocol, a check he does on his car before he goes anywhere. You know, I, I always want to be on the right side a lot. He starts with a walk around. Before I get into my car, I started from outside. I would walk around the car. Make sure the license plate is attached, checks the lights. Test the trafficators, right? Lift. He's even collected tools to help him with the process. Right where I live, I even have a big brick or a block that I push to match the bricks to make sure the, the bricks lights are working. I do all of that before I go. He does this every day he uses his car. And it's not the only ritual he's adopted to protect himself from false claims by police. I bought a camera and I said from now on, as soon as they stop me, I'm going to start recording. He now drives with seven different cameras in his car, all aimed to take in different angles, all aimed to prove what's happening to him is real. I've been pulled over so many times. And then when I look on the news, I used to hear there's, there's no racial profiling, there's no um, police stops if the, the person is not doing anything wrong. Kenrick says for years... 
He's watched police reps and talking heads on TV telling the world racial profiling isn't happening. But then he says it feels like everyone's watching when it happens to him. Every time I'm being stopped, thousands of people is passing, they're watching, yo, this guy again, this guy again, you know, it's like I'm feeling victimized. Ready? Ready to go? Absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. So I'm just going to get you to... Uh, my name is Alain Babineau. Alain, like Kenrick, is also a former police officer. He's a retired RCMP staff sergeant. And I spent 20, uh, well, 28 and a half years with the RCMP. I was in uh, law enforcement. After retiring from policing in 2016, Alain went and got a law degree at McGill University. I, I call myself a law enforcement and social justice advocate, really. He advises a Montreal-based civil rights group called CRAR, the Centre for Research Action on Race Relations, a group that, among other things, fights on behalf of people who've been racially profiled by police. According to Alain, Kenrick's experience with police stops is nothing new. Even the frequency, he says. Other black drivers in Montreal have reported similar numbers. Oh yeah, they've reported up to, you know, up to 15 uh, instances uh, themselves. So... So Mr. McCray is not unique. And those, he says, are just the people that come forward. Some people are sort of resigned to the fact that that's part of their their reality. What does that say? (laughs) It's it's horrific because they've accepted this as being their plight in life. But at at some point, you you, you have to develop some type of anger and and animus towards law enforcement, which to me is, is very, very troubling because... You know, that's, that speaks of, of a troubled society. I mean, it's just terrible because I'm a law enforcement advocate. In other words, I love law enforcement. I think it's a great institution. And when I see stuff like that happening, it anger, angers me because, because it affects the profession. It affects the, 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 the job that I did for 30 years. Alain says he saw racial profiling happen firsthand. Sometimes, he says, he wasn't just a bystander. Unfortunately, I think I've been part of racially profiling certain individuals in, in, in the course of my career. I mean, I, I was part of the drug squad for 10 years. So, you know, we were targeting so-called, you know, high crime areas. And yeah, you end up, you end up targeting a particular community. You end up developing these particular stereotypes in your mind as to who's involved in those kind of activities. And, uh, and, and sometimes you arrest, you either arrest the wrong people or sometimes you over-police certain areas and you end up finding something. So it's a form of racial profiling. And Alain, he's black. You know, even if you're, if you're a racialized uh, police officer, you become part of the culture in which you, you operate under. That culture, Alain says, is where the real problem lies, much more so than the bad apples. The system, he says, needs major reform. Policies that would eliminate things like racial profiling and tough sanctions when cops break the rules. But the people who can change that system, the ones at the top, Alain says they have trouble acknowledging there's a problem at all. Last summer, for example, a report came out, was commissioned by the city of Montreal, and among its findings was the fact that black and indigenous people are four to five times more likely to be stopped by police than white people. Indigenous women, 11 times more likely to be stopped than white women. The report, Alain says, confirmed what's long been obvious, what black and indigenous Montrealers have been saying for decades. 
So he says he was blown away when Montreal Police Chief Sylvain Caron said the findings surprised him. Well, it's flabbergasting because his predecessor <laughs> recognized that, that there was racial profiling uh, amongst its police officers. It doesn't seem like Caron has any kind of uh, institutional recollection or memory. I mean, this is an issue that's been plaguing, identified as being plaguing the, the SPVM for, for the, since the early 80s. Chief Caron vowed action. But the galling thing for Alain and Kenrick is this sudden public come-to-Jesus moment, while black Montrealers have been calling out racial profiling for decades. Kenrick has filed multiple complaints over police stops. He says are motivated by the color of his skin. Each time it's an undertaking. He has to draft up a detailed description and submit any evidence he has. But he says nothing changes. And he says the constant recurring nature of those experiences is messing with his mind and his quality of life. I, I'm, I'm, I'm scared every day, you know, especially when I go outside. I mean, you're talking about de- dehumanizing experiences that he's in, you know, encountered repeatedly. We should not underestimate the impact that it has on someone's day-to-day ability to go through life. Kenrick says after years of regular, repeated stops, he needed a plan. So I said, I'm going to start recording them, and then at a stage, I'm going to go to the media and let the media see you know, what I'm going through. Kenrick's efforts to fend off the police, the extra bright license plate, the daily walk around of his car, the cameras, they're all about to come to a head. And it's not just the media that gets pulled in. AC here. Coming up after the break, the incident that you heard with Kenrick off the top of the show we get to that part. What if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I spend the entire day quiet at home. You know, I cook, eat, and relax, watch some, uh, play some PlayStation. It's March 3rd, 2017. Kenrick has had a quiet day at home. His neck injury is still so bad he can't work. His girlfriend is at her job. He's supposed to pick her up at 10 p.m. 9.30 rolls around. He heads out to do the procedure. Walk around the car, make sure all the lights work in, put the, the block on, on, on the brakes, check the, the brake light, brake light, everything's working. Everything's in order, so he gets going. Arrives at his girlfriend's work. She comes out, gets in the car. Homewards they go. When I reach this street, Westminster, which is about, um, let's see, three or four minutes drive away from my home. She told me she wanted um, to get some money out of the bank. Kenrick pulls over. His girlfriend heads to the ATM. He leaves the car running because it's cold outside. While he waits, he sees a police cruiser coming his direction. He says it slows down when it nears. So when they came, 
directly parallel with my vehicle. The, the driver looking at me, two white officers. The one in the passenger seat, he leaning forward looking at me. So I recognized one of them because I remember he stopped me one time asking me one of these, these silly questions already, you know, with no, without any giving me any tickets or anything. Immediately, when they, they passed my vehicle and they make a U-turn and came directly behind my car and, and parked up. I have my camera. I, I turn on the camera because I sense they're going to stop me and, and harass me. Uh, my girlfriend now at this time, she came out to the bank and um, she tell me, oh, I, I see the police park behind you. I say, yes, they're going to stop me. I know they're going to stop me. And as soon as she get in and I put my vehicle in drive, the lights came on. Kenrick pulls over. One officer approaches Kenrick's window. So I turned the camera now facing me and him at the window. So he, he told me something in French. I said, sir, I don't speak French. Um, I said, what's the probable cause of the stop? He said, um, he stopped me already, but he wanted to double check if this car really belongs to me. So <laughs> I start laughing. I say, you know, yeah, see, here, here they go again trying to harass me, you know. So he asked me for my driver's license, insurance, and registration. I take it out and I give it to him. I said, I said, I hope I don't fit a profile because you guys was looking at me. I hope you guys didn't racial profile me. The officer takes Kenrick's documents and returns to the cruiser. A short while later, he comes back. Come back and he tell me, um, you also stopped me because my number plate lights wasn't working. This, of course, being Kenrick's extra luminous license plate, complete with the additional light he'd attached himself. So I laugh. I said, sir, I don't believe you. And I said, I'm coming to see who you're talking about because I don't believe you. And I exit the vehicle, and me and this police officer, we walk to the back of the car. When I look, I saw all three number plate lights working. So I take the, the camera and I focus on the light, on the number plate lights working. And I, at that time I said, you know, sir, I had enough of you guys harassing me. I said, this is harassment. I had enough of it. I'm going to make a report against you guys. Kenrick says he then steps over to film the vehicle ID number on the side of the police cruiser and says that suddenly one of the officers ran at him. He rushed to me and then the other one rushed to me and they tell me, hand over the camera. I said, I'm not giving you my camera. And they start roughing me up, pushing me against my car. So I told them, man, yo, I'm not resisting you guys because I have a neck injury. Be careful, you know. I'm not resisting you guys. But even though I'm telling them that, they don't care, they, you know, they pull my hand at the back and they put on the handcuffs. So at that time, my girlfriend jumped out and she said, what's wrong, you know? And they started pulling and tugging me, pulling and tugging me. That's when Kenrick's girlfriend takes her smartphone and starts recording. Sir, we were letting you go and you came at us. I came at me, came at yeah, so nothing. So that moment where the officer says, you came at us, and Kenrick says he didn't. I want you to put a pin in that. I'll come back to it later. Whatever occurred happened before Kenrick's girlfriend started filming. Suffice to say, there are already two very different versions of what's going down. The officers, they presented their version to Quebec's police ethics commissioner. Soon I'll tell you more about what they said happened. But for now I'll say this. The police, they say Kenrick, shouting, his left hand clenched in a fist, charged at one of them. Officer Philippe Bernard Thomasin, 
and that that, which was an assault, explains their subsequent actions. Then I hear you saying, oh, you don't come at a cop door. I said, I didn't come to you guys. I come to record my, my lights, my thing. I come to record my stuff. What are you guys talking about? Okay, you are still away. Still away, you are. At this point in the video, the police, officers Bernard Thomasin and his partner, Christian Benoit, have Kenrick up against the cruiser. His hands cuffed behind his back, holding the camera, the police trying to take it away. Release the camera, release the camera. So at that time, I told my girlfriend to come and get the camera. Because I still holding it, even though they had me handcuffed at the back. Let it go, I'll give it to your wife, okay? Let go of your camera. Okay, okay. Okay, there you, you let it go okay. right now. I'm taking it by force, okay? Thank you. Wow. There you go. So one of them tell me, uh, if I don't release the camera, he's going to take it by force. The amount of force they don't ex- exercise on me already, I was like, no, I don't need this, you know. So he said, uh, release the camera. He's going to give it to my friend. So I said, okay. So I release the camera now. Okay. Don't come at cops like that, buddy. I didn't come to you. I like oh, I yeah, you came out here. You don't come at a cop's door like that. I come to, I come okay. to check my light. You have the right to be silent. You have the right to your lawyer, okay? Okay. So now we put the cuffs on you because you were aggressive with us. Yeah, so yeah, it's for our safety. You understand? Okay. The action on the video Kenrick's girlfriend filmed on her phone ends with that. The officers put Kenrick in the back of the cruiser. One officer promises Kenrick's girlfriend He'll give her Kenrick's camera soon and tells her to stand back. We're gonna give it back to him. Oh, okay. So you can film, but then just uh, stay right, right there, okay? Don't come yeah. close like he did, okay? Thank you. He then joins his partner in the front seat of the cruiser. She continues filming, but everything now is happening inside the dark vehicle and can't be seen in her video. They didn't take the camera and give it to her. The driver took the camera and he comes in the car with it. The other one come in the car, they have me in the box seat handcuffed, and she's outside still recording. So they start going through my camera. Kenrick says the police turn on his camcorder and start going through the footage. The camera, before Kenrick started using it in his car, he'd used it to document the life of his young family. And because his wife and him are no longer together, the videos on that device are mementos of the life they shared when Kenrick's daughter was young. Photos and videos of milestones of his daughter's life. Like first day at school, board days and so forth. So that's what I had there too with videos also. My situation right now, you know, I'm going through a divorce and, you know, those, those are, are precious memories, you know. Very valuable, sentimental memories. And of course, Kenrick says, the camera also contained police stops. Plus I had about, let's say about 15 of those stops. About 15 to 20 of those stops. I'm in the back of the police car, all right, handcuffed. They're in the, in the front, and they're, they're, they're showing, lean over, to, you know, and they're, they're scrolling through all my stuff. So I said, yo, what are you guys doing, man? They started deleting everything. So I said, yo, man, why are you deleting my personal stuff? And, yo, they, they delete everything. All the pictures, all the videos, they just delete everything. Clean the SD card. Kenrick says they wiped his camera clean of everything. Years of personal family footage, a number of police stops, and of course, the footage that may have revealed exactly what had happened earlier that evening. The early moments of the police stop, the officer telling Kenrick his license plate lights were out. Kenrick getting out to verify, filming the police cruiser, and then, who charged at who? 
The police, they told the ethics commissioner they never went through Kendrick's camera, that they didn't erase anything. Officers Benoit and Bernard Thomasin, they say they never even turned it on. Shortly after, Kenrick says, a police supervisor shows up. He approaches the cruiser Kenrick is in and consults with officers Benoit and Bernard Thomasin. He spoke to them in French. I, I don't know French, so I don't know what they say. So when he finished now, so I said, um, I said, excuse me, you're the supervisor? He said, yes. I said, I want to tell you exactly what these, what these police officers did to me and what they does, just did to my, um, my videos. They delete everything. He said, you don't want to hear nothing from me. And he walked away. The supervisor has a different version of how that went down. He says he did not snub Kenrick. He says he told Kenrick he was open to talk about what had happened as soon as the officers finished their investigation. Back in the cruiser, Kenrick says Benoit and Bernard Thomasin begin working on their computer. Eventually, he recalls, one of them turns to him, tells him he's in luck. Oh, I'm lucky. Unfortunately, um... They didn't find no charge for me. No charges. But before they let him go, Kenrick says, Officer Christian Benoit gives him some advice. Let me be careful because the next set of police officers that stop me might be more brutal and forceful against me. Officer Benoit, he denies saying this. They took me out of the police car, take off the handcuff, give me my camera and tell me let me go and have a, a better night. It's all too much for Kenrick. So I said, you know something? The job I used to do, you guys supposed to be saluting to me, you know? So they say, oh, everybody, we, every um, person we stop, they always say if back in the country there was a police officer. I said, okay. And I, I walk away. Kenrick and his girlfriend get back in the car, check his camera. He says it's been wiped clean. But they still have the footage she took on her cell phone of the second half of the incident. He calls 911, tells the operator the entire story, and says he wants to speak to a higher up. A short time later, he gets a call back. It's a supervisor. Kenrick starts at the beginning, but the man, he says, doesn't seem receptive. But Kenrick pushes ahead with the story. He gets to the part where they've erased his camera. At that moment, Kenrick recalls, the supervisor jumps in and tells him he'd better have proof. Suddenly, Kenrick clues in. He asks the man he's talking to if he's the same supervisor who showed up earlier that night. The one, Kenrick says, who refused to help him out. So I said, excuse me, sir, um, you was the supervisor on the scene? He said, yes. And he said, if it was him, he would have locked me up. I said, okay. I said, all right. But then if you weren't credible to take my information then, that means you're not credible to take my information now. And I hung up the phone on him. Again, the supervisor, Sergeant Marco Joseph, has a very different version of that phone call. He says it was he himself who recognized who Kenrick was and then made it clear he wasn't the appropriate person to be fielding Kenrick's complaint. But back to Kenrick. After the call with Sergeant Joseph, Kenrick calls 911 again, re-explains the whole story to a new operator, adds the detail of that last phone call. He says he eventually connects with another manager, again goes through the whole story. This time, though, something happens. There's traction. He said, you sure you have a video of you being handcuffed, put in the police car? I said, yes. He said, what he could see on his screen, because it seemed, the way he was talking to me, it seems like he could see all the operations. What he could see on the stream is that, yes, my car was stopped. And the police fill out a report saying that they stopped me, routine check, and everything was okay. And they let me go. 
No mention of Kenrick's alleged assault on the officer, his subsequent arrest, no mention of the handcuffing, no mention of him being read his rights or put in the cruiser, nothing. Since that day, I, I felt, you know, like I'm not, I'm not worth, you know, living in, in this society. Deleting all my private stuff, you know, all my stuff, I cherish and, and, and hold so dear to my heart. They delete everything, you know, so it, it's not a nice feeling. Okay, yes, big, the recording. big red button. It looks like it's rolling. It looks like it's recording. Yes, sir. Okay, great. Yes, my name is Fo Niemi. I'm the executive director. Fo Niemi heads up CRAR, the Montreal-based civil rights organization that helps a lot of people, like Kenrick, who say they've been racially profiled. It's the same organization that Alain Babineau, the former RCMP officer we met earlier, has worked for as an advisor. Kenrick says the police higher-up he spoke to the night he was arrested, the one he talked to on his second call, told him to reach out to CRAR, to ask them to help him file a complaint. Well, basically, when he came to see us about this, the, the case, we just felt it was a horrendous case, and especially in the violence, um, as well as the fact that uh, he was um, really, you know, a typical case of a, a black man who drove a nice uh, car, a Mercedes, who was stopped. We recognized all the elements of a typical driving while black, uh, leading to the use of uh, excessive force. And the more egregious part of that is the fact that they um, look into the video and erases a video recording of the incident. Foe and the team at CRAR got down to business helping Kenrick draft his complaint. He says Kenrick was lucky his girlfriend was with him at the time of the incident. Most of the time, driving while black incidents happen when the driver is alone, facing two police officers. So sometimes there's a problem with proving or comparing the versions or documenting it. In this case, uh, he had, a, at the time, a, a great witness who, uh, who helped a lot in the case. Despite believing it to be a solid case with two witnesses, Kenrick and his girlfriend, Foe still thought it was a long shot, particularly the question of racial profiling. Over the years of uh, dealing with the committee and dealing with the police uh, ethics system in Quebec, we know that to have the committee recognize race or racial discrimination in a police misconduct is always a tall order. Like Kenrick, Foe believes racial profiling was the catalyst that sparked the whole incident. His next job was to prove it. Foe helped Kenrick compile all his information and send in a formal complaint to Quebec's police ethics commissioner. Foe says, if he remembers correctly, they sent it in by fax, and then crossed their fingers and waited. Hi, you're reaching Jeff voicemail. Please leave me a message. If you're a media, please send me a text message. Thank you. Have a great day. Hi, Madame Joutra. It's Mark from the CBC. We were uh, talking back and forth in email about the case of a fellow named Kenrick McRae. Due to the exceptional situation related to the pandemic, you must join the media relations of the Montreal police by email. Montreal's police force, the SPVM, they're pretty central to this story. So is the city of Montreal, which runs the force. I reached out to both of them. Same with Montreal's police union and the government of Quebec, hoping for someone in a position of power who could comment on what Kenrick had gone through. My requests were all declined. Fonyemi, he says he's not surprised. I told you that they were going to give me an interview, and then they said, no, they can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, the police, the police, uh, the SPVM, mm-hmm. the, the Montreal police, also will not talk to me. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's, what do you think is happening there? 
problem with accountability and, and transparency. Are you surprised? No. It's a way of life here. I'm sorry? It's a way of life here. Okay, tell me about that. It's a way of life here because it's here there's no, there's no you know, the, the notion of public accountability and transparency, in, at, at least in dealing with racism, is not part of the public civic culture. Fonyemi and Alain Babineau, they say the denial of what's happening to people of color in Montreal goes right to the top and that it's not limited to Quebec. Same kind of stuff goes on right across the country. This summer, anti-racism protests sprang up across Canada, catalyzed in part by the ones which exploded in the U.S. after the police killings of George Floyd in Minneapolis and Breonna Taylor in Louisville. In the midst of it all, Quebec Premier François Legault made clear his belief that while there may be some racists in Quebec, there's no systemic structure that leads to people like Kenrick being targeted over and over again. Elsewhere in Canada, similar comments came out, like the commanding officer of Alberta's RCMP, Curtis Zablocki. It's different than the United States. I don't believe that racism is systemic through Canadian policing. I don't believe it's systemic through uh, policing in Alberta. That same month, in June, the head of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, told the Globe and Mail about her force that, quote, we don't have systemic racism, unquote. Remember, Alain, he worked for the RCMP for 28 years, stationed mainly in Ontario. He says he both witnessed and participated in racial profiling. Commissioner Lucky's stance that the RCMP was free of systemic racism sparked an outcry. Shortly after, she did the media rounds, walking it back. To say systemically that we have racism, I think systemically there's racism in most organizations. And I don't think the RCMP is immune to that. These reactions to the problem of systemic racism, Faux and Alain say, they manifest in pretty obvious ways, like the matter of street checks in Montreal. Street checks are when an officer goes up and speaks to someone on the street, asks a few questions for information gathering purposes. Till recently, the SPVM didn't have a policy on street checks. Civil rights advocates long said it led to discrimination. Remember, black and indigenous Montrealers are four to five times more likely to be stopped in these checks. So this summer, while Black Lives Matter protests surged across the world, Montreal finally unveiled a policy that would lay out how police can do these checks. Aujourd'hui, the SPVM devient the premier corps policier du Québec à se doter d'une telle politique. Pour la première fois, with all his years in policing, Alain says street checks can be a legitimate tool, as long as solid rules ensure against racial profiling. But he says Montreal's policy falls short, because it doesn't say what happens when the rules are broken. This policy is just a policy. There's no teeth, it has no sanction attached to it. It will never be taken seriously, as it is right now, it will never be taken seriously by either the community the black community, or the, even the, their own employees. Faux, he agrees this policy is nowhere near strong enough. Both say the single biggest problem with the policy is that it leaves out police stops of drivers. Montreal police and the city of Montreal chose to focus only on street checks involving pedestrians. Why they do not uh, address the whole issue of driving while black, which is a more prevailing problem of um, members of the black community when it comes to racial profiling, it escapes us. It doesn't even uh, address the issue that McCray was confronted with because it doesn't apply to traffic stop. Both think, instead, 
during a summer of anti-racist protests, the policy was all about optics, to appear to be on the right side of public opinion. And Alain says clear, firm guidelines are needed, not just because people of color are stopped more frequently, but also because the stops, he says, can just escalate. He gives the example of someone who just reflexively pulls away when grabbed by a police officer. Let's see. If he, like, yanks his arm away. Yeah, yanks your arm away or you refuse to come along and, and inadvertently you, you hit the police officer as, you, as you're doing that, boom, you get charged automatically with assaulting a police officer and then you're off to the races. Now you're, you're saddled with criminal charges, then you got to get a lawyer, then it's going to take years and you might end up, you know, 90%, as you know, or maybe, maybe you don't know, but 90% of, of charges are dealt with where people plead guilty. 90%, particularly in vulnerable communities, it's higher. And, and a large percentage of people in jail are people that actually pled, pled guilty, right? Not necessarily that they were guilty, but they didn't have the means to fight their charges. So you have a whole lot of people in jail right now that had they had a, a good lawyer, they would never have seen the interior of a jail cell. But they end, they end up in jail. So in the case of McCray, you know, I, I think he was cool, calm, and collected. But but for that, he could have ended up, you know, right now he could still be fighting criminal charges. Remember when I told you to put a pin in that matter about who ran at who the night Kenrick was arrested? In video taken by Kenrick's girlfriend after the fact, an officer says Kenrick charged at them. Kenrick says it was the other so way around. And then there was Kenrick's camera which may have shown exactly what happened, but which the police, Kenrick says, then erased. Well, nearly two years after Kenrick and Foe filed a complaint about that whole incident, Quebec's Police Ethics Committee finally weighs in. Its decision arrives at Kenrick's home in a large envelope. It's in French, so Kenrick calls Foe, who accesses it online and goes through it with him, translating. The decision goes through, moment by moment, Kenrick's version of what happened the night of March 3, 2017. It then looks at the version submitted by the two officers and the supervisor, Sergeant Marco Joseph. The officers, in their testimony, they deny much of Kenrick's story. In their version of events, for example, they never went through nor erased Kenrick's camera. They didn't threaten Kenrick, and the arrest, they say, was due to Kenrick's agitated behavior. They feared him and feared that if they didn't detain him, he would physically attack them. But the committee, in its decision, it enumerates a long list of reasons why it's Kenrick's story they found credible. For example, in his testimony, Officer Bernard Thomasin says at one point Kenrick, shouting, closed his fist and charged, and that the officer was afraid. But the committee points out that would be assault, but that none of it, Kenrick's charging nor the officer's fear, was included in the police report Bernard Thomasin wrote up after the incident. Additionally, the committee says it is, quote, inconceivable that an officer would be assaulted in that context, but not lay any charges. Another example. The officers say they took Kenrick's camera because the footage he would have captured that night could have proven he'd assaulted Bernard Thomasin. So the committee asks, why were the officers collecting proof of an assault, but then not lay any charges? It concludes, quote, that it is more probable that the officers wanted to see what Mr. McRae had filmed and that they then erased the contents of the camera, unquote. The report goes through both versions of the evening this way, point by point. Ultimately, the committee concluded that between the two of them, 
officers Christian Benoit and Philippe Bernard Thomasin committed 16 violations of Quebec's police ethics code. Illegal arrest, illegal use of force. The arrest and use of force on Kenrick by the officers was illegal. Seizing his camera, going through its contents, erasing it, all were breaches of Quebec's police ethics code. The committee also found that officers Benoit and Bernard Thomasin that they knowingly filed false reports about the incident. But for Kenrick and Faux, possibly the most significant conclusion by the committee was that the original sin of the entire incident, the reason the police stopped Kenrick in the first place, is because he's black. I'm translating from the French, but the way it's written in the decision is that it was a, quote, intervention based on race. It's a very, very interesting decision because it's one of the few times that the Police Ethics Committee recognized that race, his race, play a part in the way that he was treated. In August 2020, eight months after it issued its decision, the Police Ethics Committee presented sanctions for those violations. The various violations added up to 34 days suspension without pay for Officer Benoit, 28 days for Bernard Thomasin. Racial profiling accounts for five days of both suspensions. But chunks of both suspensions could be served concurrently, meaning ultimately both officers face 13-day suspension without pay. For Kenrick, it's not enough. 13 days each. That's just a slap on the wrist, you know. You guys going to just go and do what you got to do, you know. Harass us, intimidate us, racially profile us, and you know, you're just going to get a, a nice little vacation. There's no, there's no change. Fonyemi, he's also disappointed but says the committee is limited in the kinds of sanctions it can hand out. We felt that the penalty or the sanction should be more stringent and serious. Unfortunately, the way the system works is the committee had to be guided by previous decisions and case law and jurisprudence. My hope was for them to be fired because they're going to continue to do this, these acts. You know, if if they don't have the, the right penalty or the right consequences. There's also the matter of Sergeant Marco Joseph. He's the supervisor, Kenrick says, did nothing to rein in the officers the night of the incident. The same guy, Kenrick says, who fielded his 911 call after the fact and told him if he'd been involved, he'd have thrown Kenrick in jail. Kenrick wanted to see Sergeant Joseph held accountable too. But the ethics commissioner, Faux says, concluded there wasn't enough evidence to hold him liable. In his testimony to the Police Ethics Committee, Sergeant Joseph says that's not what happened. He says he stuck around to speak to Kenrick after the officers were done their investigation, but that Kenrick gave him an angry look and left. And Sergeant Joseph says when Kenrick called 911 to file a complaint, once he realized who Kenrick was, he explained it wasn't appropriate for him to be taking the complaint and ended the call. I requested an interview with Sergeant Marco Joseph, but it was declined. Three months ago, I also filed an access to information request with Montreal Police in order to get a recording of that phone call. Just this week, the SPVM sent me several files. They included recordings of both Kenrick's calls with the 911 operators, but they didn't include the recording of his conversation with Sergeant Joseph, which is the call I was after. They wrote they'd excluded it in accordance with the Act Respecting Access to Documents Held by Public Bodies and the Protection of Personal Information and that they excluded it because it's information connected to police exercising their duty to prevent crimes. It's possible to have that decision reviewed, which I'll do. The Police Ethics Committee, it's not the only agency to which Kenrick brought his complaint. 
Faux, Alain, and Crar, they also helped Kenrick file a complaint with Quebec's Human Rights Commission. There, too, the commission decided in Kenrick's favor, saying, contrary to Quebec's Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the police treated Kenrick in a, quote, differentiated or non-habitual way, unquote, because he belongs to a charter-protected group. It recommended the city of Montreal pay Kenrick $18,000 in damages, and for the police officers to pay him 4000 each. Unlike the Police Ethics Committee, the Human Rights Commission can't enforce its decisions, only make recommendations. Faux says he's not sure Kenrick will ever see the money. Already, the deadline to pay Kenrick the damages has passed. That means the case now escalates to the province's Human Rights Tribunal, where the city and police will fight for a different outcome. So for Kenrick, those 13-day suspensions for the two officers stand as what's been achieved from this whole process. But the officers, they have the right to appeal, and they have. Um, I could tell you, um, as of now, you know, they already appealed, you know. They already appealed it because this is, this is what they sent to me a couple of days ago. The, the bailiff brought to me um, sometime last week. They're appealing everything, you know, so. On a recent video call, he waves a piece of paper from the Court of Quebec, a document notifying him of the appeal. Now I got to go fight, fight again, just to get what? A joke, you know, so. Alain says, considering everything that's happened to Kenrick, he can only imagine the toll it's taken on his mental health. He can argue that he's suffering from some form of PTSD, right? Because this has happened to him repeatedly, repeatedly. And, uh, and so that's very serious in my opinion because his... And here's, here's a guy who was a cop. Still suffering from his back and neck injuries, in 2018, Kenrick got a part-time job driving a school bus. He says he can barely make ends meet on the pay, and the vibrations from the bus, they're painful, and they're not great for his recovery. But that's the best job I could do right now. Kenrick says everything he's going through with the police. If he could, he'd leave it all behind, leave Montreal. But he can't leave his daughter. He's stuck in a world, he says, where he doesn't count. I'm doing this. I'm paying an integral part in the society, right? I sure these police officers... Their mom is on this plane that I'm moving. Their daughter, their sister, their brother, their son is on this plane that I'm moving. And this is what I'm going to, right? Now, I'm, I start driving the, the school bus. And then now, the same thing keep happening. But now, I'm taking these same people, kids to school, you know. How should I be happy that I'm... I'm doing this, and I'm getting this kind of harassment for nothing. Kenrick McRae. His story was produced by Mark Apollonio. It was edited by me, A.C. Rowe, with Sherry Okeke and Tanera McLean. Special thanks to Allison Brottle and Molly Kristalka. After everything that's happened, Kenrick's run-ins with police haven't ended. He currently has another case before Quebec's police ethics commissioner, fighting a driving-related fine. Police approached him while he was cleaning recycling out of his car, which was parked in front of his home. On our Instagram and Facebook pages, we have posted a photo of Kenrick's super bright license plate, complete with its triptych of lights. Just search for The Doc Project on either of those platforms. If you're looking for the whale tail, you can't miss us. 
That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Mark Apollonio, Sherry Okeke, Tanera McLean, Julia Poggle, Allison Cook, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.